When my son Nick was growing up, he was a grade A, all-American, rough and tumble, 100% little boy. Ball in the backyard, wrestling on the rug. Nick was always where the action was. But Nick also had a soft, sensitive side. When he was four years old, I made a comment that hurt his tender feelings. Little Nick, he lowered his head. He was about to cry. I remember asking him, son, what's wrong? And I'll never forget his answer. Nick whimpered, Dad, my tears are starting to drip. And like Nick, Jeremiah also had a propensity for dripping tears. This prophet had a man's iron will, but he had a mother's tender heart. He stood for God valiantly and courageously. Instructed to preach an unpopular message, he remained faithful to his calling. In my mind, Jeremiah was perhaps one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, maybe the greatest. But ironically, he was hated by his contemporaries. He was attacked personally. His message was rejected. Really, Jeremiah lived a sad, lonely life. At times, he wanted to quit. In chapter 20, he turns in his resignation. And yet the reason he gives for quitting end up being the same reasons he reenlists. The people who frustrated him were the same people he loved and that he wanted to reach. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You know, it's interesting to compare his ministry with that of Jonah, the bigoted prophet. You remember Jonah hated the people he was sent to preach to, the Ninevites. Initially, he tried to run from God's calling. God had to fish him out of the sea in order to make him a fisher of men. And yet when he preached, Nineveh repented. God saved his enemies, and it upset Jonah. He wanted them judged. Well, in contrast, Jeremiah is just the opposite. He loved the Jews. His heart broke for the people. His passion was their salvation. And yet the people rejected his message. Jeremiah ended up weeping over the sin and suffering of Judah. You know, the story's told of two men. They were talking about their respective churches one man mentioned that his church had recently fired its pastor and hired a new one. His friend asked, why was he fired? Well, he spoke too much about hell. The fellow asked again, he said, well, what does your new pastor speak on? Well, he speaks on hell too. Well, the friend was puzzled. He said, well, are you going to fire this pastor also? The man answered, oh, no. When the old preacher spoke on hell, he seemed to enjoy it. But when this new pastor speaks on hell, he weeps. It was said of the great preacher D.L. Moody, only Mr. Moody has the right to preach on hell, for when he does, he preaches it with tears in his voice. And this was Jeremiah. If you had a harsh message to send, what kind of spokesman would you choose to deliver it? A crusty, hard, uncaring fellow? Or a compassionate, tender man with dripping tears? God chose the latter in Jeremiah. With Jeremiah, the most sensitive man warned the people of Judah about the most serious judgments. Chapter 1 begins with an introduction, the words of Jeremiah. Now contrast this with the opening words of other prophets. Joel, for example, begins, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Zephaniah, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. 
These prophecies are all introduced as the word of the Lord, whereas verses 1 and 2 describe this book as the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. It's a subtle, yet I think it's a significant difference. Apparently, these other prophets, they wrote only the words that God gave them. Jeremiah also contains the word of the Lord, but it's surrounded by his own words and his own thoughts and his own feelings and experiences. Obviously, God's Spirit oversaw what was written to make sure it was exactly what God intended. But Jeremiah is the most autobiographical of the prophets. We learn of not only God's statements in Jeremiah, but we learn of the prophet's own struggles. His introduction continues. He calls himself the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin. This Hilkiah is also mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. He was the priest who found a copy of the law of Moses. You see, at the time, Manasseh reigned in Judah. Manasseh reigned for 54 years, from 697 to 643 B.C. And Manasseh was the most wicked of all Judah's monarchs. This Manasseh, he was into idolatry. He encouraged it. In fact, he even brought idols into the temple itself, even into the Holy of Holies. During the time of Manasseh, the law of Moses became a relic of the past. It was neglected, eventually lost. And it was assumed that all the copies of the law had been destroyed. But one day, this priest, Hezekiah, uh, Hilkiah, he was rummaging around in the temple storage. And he happened to run across a copy of the law. He brought it to Manasseh's grandson, the king at the time, a man named Josiah. Josiah read it. And he realized the severity of his grandfather's sin. Josiah went on to demolish the pagan shrines, and he instituted a program to read and to teach this word to the people of Israel. He wanted them to become obedient to God's law, to what he had read. And Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, was a friend of this Josiah, probably had a profound impact on Josiah's life, and no doubt Jeremiah was affected by this discovery. In fact, he makes mention to it in chapter 15, verse 16. There Jeremiah prays, O Lord, your words were found. When the priest discovered them in the temple, your words were found. And what did he do with them? I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. After this discovery, he embraced the word. He consumed it. He made it a part of his life. When you read the Word of God, when you digest it, when you take it to heart, it does become your richest treasure. It does bring to your heart joy and rejoicing. You know, you've come tonight, but perhaps during the week your Bible sits on a shelf. Maybe it does a lot of collecting dust. On Sunday nights you have to blow off the dust before you bring it to church. Oh, you know it's physical whereabouts, but spiritually your Bible remains undiscovered. I challenge you to pick it up and to read it with an eager, obedient heart, you'll discover that it's God's love letter to you. The Bible does bring joy and rejoicing to any heart who takes the time to read it and believe it and trust in it. Well, verse 1 also tells us Jeremiah grew up in Anathoth. Anathoth was a Levitical city, two and a half miles northeast of Jerusalem. 
Jeremiah's peeps were priests and Levites, the tribe dedicated to God's service. I'm sure these associations helped mold his character. We know that Hilkiah, the high priest, was his father. Some believe Huldah, the prophetess, was his aunt. The point is, Jeremiah needed a godly upbringing to prepare him for the difficult assignment that God was going to give him. Well, Verse 2 spots Jeremiah on the timeline. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Josiah, remember, was the boy king. He was the king who took the throne at eight years old. Now Josiah is 21. It could be that the king and Jeremiah were of a similar age. And thus Jeremiah would have been around 20 years old when God first spoke to him. It's probable Jeremiah and Josiah were close friends, maybe like David and Jonathan. Jeremiah was one of the godly influences on King Josiah. In fact, 2 Chronicles 35 verse 25 tells us Jeremiah was one of the mourners at Josiah's funeral. And then verse 3, It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. And so he charts out the duration of his ministry, put these dates together, and it means that Jeremiah ministered, oh, for roughly 41 years, from around 627 B.C. to 586 B.C. Jeremiah reigned or, or served during the reigns of five Judean kings. In these passages, he mentions three significant ones, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Now, we're going to be dealing quite a bit with history over the course of Jeremiah's prophecy. And thus, the background reading for you is two places, 2 Kings 21 through 25, and then 2 Chronicles 33 through 36. Read those passages, and you'll get the backdrop to the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah ended up representing God in a critical period. This time frame was the final throes of the nation of Judah. It was the time just before the nation's fall to the Babylonians. In fact, Jeremiah saw all three Babylonian invasions in 605 B.C., in 597, and then the final destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 586 B.C. all came under Jeremiah's watch. In fact, when the temple had been burned to ashes, when the walls were laid to rubble, when the people were being carted off into exile, Jeremiah, he sat in his grotto, overlooking the road, weeping over what could have been. Perhaps it was there that he wrote of his remorse and the realities of judgment in the book of Lamentations. In the rest of chapter 1, Jeremiah remembers his initial calling into the ministry. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before he was even born. I would imagine Jeremiah had grown up hoping to be a priest like his father, Hilkiah. But God had other plans for this man. Jeremiah was born a priest, but God called him and equipped him to be a prophet to the nations. And understand what we mean here by prophet. 
Often we think of a prophet as somebody who predicts the future, but instead of foretelling, the idea of prophecy implies forthtelling God's word. The prophet declared the word of God, the word that God spoke to him, whatever it might have been. At times it was predictive in nature, but more often than not, it addressed issues at hand and it called for repentance. Now here in verse 4, God calls Jeremiah and he speaks four truths about him. Before he was born, God knew him, God formed him, God sanctified him, and God ordained him. Before he was even conceived in his mother's womb, God had his mind on Jeremiah. He had a personality in mind for him. He had a purpose that was already decided. He had a mission for which he was ordered. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul made a similar claim. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. God knew Paul and had a calling on his life long before Paul knew God. And I believe that you and I could say the same. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 speaks of all Christians. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the world was framed, God chose you. God chose me. Paul goes even further in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, Whom God foreknew, He predestined. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Like Jeremiah, God chose you from birth. He prepared you with a body and with a personality. He set you aside for special purposes. He even equipped you for a ministry. But also, like Jeremiah, you too may have shared his penchant for excuses. Notice verse 6. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. And don't misunderstand, the Hebrew word translated youth here doesn't refer to a child. It's not like he's saying, oh, well, I'm just six years old. No, the word youth refers to a young man. He could have been 20 years old and still been a youth. Realize, though, in Hebrew culture, age came with honor. A few decades under your belt was a distinction of which you were proud. The assumption was the older a man, the wiser. In fact, a priest couldn't actually begin his life's calling until he was 30 years old. You know, perhaps this is why Jesus waited so long to start his ministry. If Jesus had begun in his 20s, he might not have had certain people's respect. I started my ministry at the ripe old age of 22. And I'm sure there were people who looked down on my youth, no doubt about it. They weren't ready to trust a 22-year-old. I'll never forget when I turned 30, we had a little Cuban lady in the church. Her name was Sonia, and she approached me on my 30th birthday, and she was so happy. I remember her smile. She said, Pastor, Pastor, I am so glad you're 30 years old now. We no longer have a young pastor. <laughs> As if a young pastor was a burden that she had been carrying. Perhaps it was. <laughs> you know, I once talked to a man who told me that he would never attend a church unless the pastor was older than him. It was interesting. I guess the older he gets, the fewer churches he's, he has to maybe go to. 
but he wasn't going to follow a man still wet behind his ears. It seems that a 20-something-year-old Jeremiah was intimidated by his older peers. He felt too young. He felt inadequate. But God tells Jeremiah not to cow away from his calling because of his youthfulness. That's no excuse. Verse 7, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. I love how God deals with his excuses. <laughs> he just dismisses them. He doesn't debate them. He doesn't get into a discussion. He refuses to take no for an answer. He said, you shall go. This is not a subject open for debate. Jeremiah, you will speak whatever God commands you. And it's true. History teaches us that youth is never an excuse for, for not embracing great and grand ventures. Ventures of faith. Alexander the Great conquered the world at age 23. John Calvin joined the Reformation at 21 years old. Joan of Arc completed her work at the age of 19. Charles Spurgeon was at one time called the boy preacher. At 19, he preached in London to crowds of 2,000 people. You don't have to wait until you're a fossil to start serving the Lord. At whatever age God calls, it's time to get going. Well, verse 8, the Lord says, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Having formed him in the womb, God understood Jeremiah's sensitivity. You see, the prophet cared about people. He cared about their reactions to what he had to say, their opinions of him. He looked into their eyes and he read the expressions on their faces. But what was a strength was also a potential weakness. You know, perhaps you have to do it to really appreciate it. But whenever you stand up and speak to people, you're affected by their faces. This made Jeremiah vulnerable to nonverbal forms of intimidation. Oh, the wrinkled brow caused him to doubt at times. Piercing stares scared him. Scrunched eyebrows, frowning lips discouraged the prophet. I'm saying, a person who speaks for God to people knows how faces can be intimidating. Twice a week, I pour out my heart from this podium, and all I have to gauge my success is what I see on your faces, your expressions. And the looks that you return to me, they affect me far more than you think. Smile, and it stirs my heart. Shake your head in agreement, and it enthuses me. Laugh at one of my corny jokes, and I appreciate the pity. But also know the effect negative expressions can have. <laughs> How do you feel in the midst of a conversation with someone you know when that person frowns, or when they roll their eyes, or when they look down their nose at you? Facial expressions have an impact. And this is why God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, look beyond their faces. Do not be afraid of their faces, Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you. Look beyond their faces. God's spokesman should be immune to facial expressions. God wants Jeremiah to learn to look past people's faces and straight into their hearts. I'll never forget one Sunday. It's been decades ago now. Alan and Nancy, remember it? 
there was a lady in the back of the sanctuary. She gave me a blank stare the whole service. I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on with this lady. I thought for sure she was bored, uninterested. I didn't know what I'd done to her, didn't even know her. But she looked like she was mad at me the whole service. Talk about a poker face. I was shocked when Nancy called me later that afternoon and told me she'd given her life to Jesus that day. Who would have thunk it? Like Jeremiah, I'm learning, do not be afraid of their faces. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Notice this. Every man of God, every work for God, always gets launched with a touch from God. Jeremiah will be God's spokesman. So God touches his mouth. He makes it his own. Jeremiah's lips, his vocal cords, will now become God's instrument. Here God tunes Jeremiah's mouth to his will and to his ways and to his words. And notice God says specifically, I have put my words in your mouth. What Jeremiah spoke and then wrote were not just God's ideas, not just his thoughts, but his very words. And this is what we mean when we call the Bible verbally inspired. That God oversaw the compilation of the Bible so that every word was written. Every word that was written was what God desired. Notice in verse 10, God continues his calling on Jeremiah. He says, See, I have, set, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Notice the important post here Jeremiah is given. He's over nations. Jeremiah will pronounce the destinies of kingdoms and kings. He'll oversee the rise and fall of nations. This makes the office of a prophet higher in rank than that of presidents and premiers and parliaments. And the content of Jeremiah's prophecies will be largely negative, notice. He says, uprooting, pulling down, destroying. And I think this is what was so hard on Jeremiah. His was a tough message. And because of it, God gives him two visions that are going to help him understand the emphasis of his ministry. Notice verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Understand, almond trees in Israel, they budded in mid-January. This made them an early producer. The blossoming of an almond tree was an indicator that spring had sprung. Thus, the almond tree was seen as a harbinger. It became a precursor of things to come, of what was to follow. And this was the gist of Jeremiah's ministry. He was God's last warning to the nation of coming judgment. He was a precursor to judgment. He was God's last call. And then he says, And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot. And it is facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. We know that Jeremiah oversaw Babylon's invasion of Judah. 
But if you look at a map, you'll notice that Babel is due east. So why does God here picture this boiling calamity coming from the north? Well, notice between Israel and Babylon is a vast expanse of barren desert. So any trip from east to west was always made by circling around and above the desert and coming into Israel from Lebanon, from the north. And thus the boiling pot of Babylonian brutality was sitting on top of the nation. Now it's about to be dumped out upon Judah. It's about to scald the city of Jerusalem. He says, For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. The city of Jerusalem will be surrounded by enemy troops. He says, And I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, burn incense to other gods, and worshipped the work of their own hands. God is going to judge His people because of their idolatry. God hates idolatry. The people had put other gods before Him. And when this happens, God takes it personally. Don't think He doesn't. He does. He takes it personally. He's a jealous God. He wants our allegiance. He wants our love. He wants our affections, and when we give them away to another, God is angered. Here God takes it personally because they had prioritized other gods. And God takes it personally when we prioritize other things over Him, whether they be gods or goals or gizmos or whatever it may be. This is why John tells us to hate idols. Notice verse 17 moves from the nation now back to Jeremiah. Therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. What an amazing promise to a young man. God will make Jeremiah strong, like city walls of stone and rebar and bronze. Walls that were strong, walls that were slick. You see, an invader couldn't go through fortified walls. They were too strong. Nor could he go over bronze walls. He would slide down. They were too slick. Fortified bronze walls were invincible. God's promise was comforting to Jeremiah. But I would imagine this promise was also just a little disconcerting. Why am I going to need so much protection, he asks. Here he's told, you'll be opposed by kings and princes and priests and even the people of the land. Jeremiah's sort of adding it up in his head. Wait a minute, that's everybody. Everybody's going to fight against me. Jeremiah will be called on to carry the torch for God alone. No one else will stand with him. He'll need to stand alone. 
I'm sure you've heard it said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. And that certainly could have been said of Jeremiah's ministry. No one likes to be told of their sin and judgment. They'd rather laugh it off. They'd rather stick their head in the sand and pretend that nothing's wrong. Jeremiah was God's warning. He was God's alarm clock. He challenged the people. And he will be opposed at every angle. Chapter 2 tells us, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Here, as well as throughout the Bible, God compares His relationship with His people to marriage. And of course, this is why the definition of marriage is so vital. God has given to marriage certain spiritual connotations. It teaches us about Him and our relationship with Him. Here, God thinks of His newlywed years. When He first brought the Jews out of Egypt, their love for Him was new and fresh. Like newlyweds, they were on their best behavior, trying to make good first impressions. Have you ever watched newlyweds in action? They like write little notes to each other. They write each other's name on the shower door, you know, so, the next, so they can see it when they jump in behind each other. And they go out on the beach and they draw hearts in the sand and they do strange little things to get each other's attention. And they celebrate everything like their first picnic in the anniversary of their first phone conversation. I mean, like really important dates on the calendar. In other words, newlyweds become preoccupied with each other. A newlywed's love is passionate. But over time, the new wears off. The devotion grows tired and old and boring. And this is what happened to God's people and their relationship with God. At first, the Jews neglected Him. Then they substituted other gods for Him. Finally, they forgot God altogether. And you see, this is how it works in a Christian's life. At first, God has your whole heart. You're preoccupied with Him. But then you let other stuff come in and crowd Him out. Before long, you have no time for Him whatsoever. God becomes a thing of the past. Well, here in chapter 2, God says to Judah, Though you forgot me, I have not forgotten or forsaken you. And he says the same to us. He loves us, and he wants us to return. Notice verse 3. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Notice the key word, was. Israel was holiness. Israel was set apart to and for the Lord. But what happened? He says, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? I mean, like the initial cry of a spurned lover, God asks the question, what have I done to you? I mean, what have I lacked in our relationship? That you've turned your back and your heart on me. Notice, this isn't the cry of a cold, aloof, impersonal God. No, these are a lover's tears. 
Here God is getting emotional. He cares deeply for His people. No wonder He wanted a sensitive man like Jeremiah to deliver this message. Verse 6 continues, Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I mean, no one ever questioned who was in charge. No one ever asked, where is God? The cloud by day, the fire by night, God was with them. The manna every morning, God's presence was all around them. Every single day, the people knew that God was by their side. God had not failed them. If only they had trusted Him. If only they had really believed in Him. You see, it was only after they settled into a prosperous land where their needs were met. Once their trust was on Him, or when they were in the wilderness, their trust on Him was apparent. They needed Him. But once they settled into the land, they tended to forget about Him. Notice God says, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And the priest didn't realize that they had strayed from the Lord. They had drifted far from Him, and yet they didn't even know it. He says, and those who handled the law did not know me. Now this is an amazing truth. Realize this. You can handle God's law. In essence, you can be a Bible scholar. You can be a seminary professor and not even know God still be dead and lost in your sins. He says, those who handle the law, they did not know me. You see, a person can know a lot about God, but that's not the same as knowing God personally. Not by a long shot. He continues, the rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Notice the play on words, false prophets who walk after stuff that doesn't profit. Verse 9, therefore I will bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see. Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Now Cyprus was an island west of Israel. Kedar was on the eastern edge of Arabia. Thus from Cyprus to Kedar was like saying from California to Maine. Or from coast to coast, God is saying, search, if you will, from west to east. He says, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Not even pagan nations have changed their gods. And their gods are nothing but inanimate chunks of stone and wood. Why have the people of the one true God rejected Him and His glory for worthless and impotent idols? He says, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water first realize cistern 
is not the female version of brethren. You know that. Half of us are brethren and half of us are sistren. No, it's not, that's not the word. And for the record, he's not speaking of female believers with small bladders. Cisterns that can hold no water. That's not the point here either. No, go to Israel and visit the ancient tales. And you'll see thousands of cisterns. A cistern was a man dug hole in the rock. It was designed to collect and store rainwater. You see, a fountain flowed from within, from an underground aquifer or spring, but a cistern collected water from the outside. Obviously, a fountain was more dependable. It was its own source, whereas a cistern needed it to rain. You can go to Masada and to Megiddo, and you can see some cistern systems that were elaborate feats of engineering. And yet here, Jeremiah accuses Israel of two sins. First, of forsaking their Lord, the fountain of living waters. And then second, for pursuing man-hewn cisterns, which were cracked in leaky sources of pleasure. And isn't this what people have done today? Jesus promised the woman at the well living water, spiritual satisfaction. He pledges to us to quench our deepest thirsts. And yet we forsake Jesus, the fountain of living water. For man-made cisterns and sources of pleasure, sex and booze and drugs and video games and sports and whatever it might be. The world provides a high, but it's a cracked cistern. The buzz subsides, the source dries up. The things of this world are cracked, leaky cisterns that ultimately fail to satisfy. It's when we drink from the fountain of living waters when we bring our needs to God that's when we find satisfaction and we'll never thirst again notice verse 14 he says is Israel a servant is he a home-born slave why is he plundered now there were Jews in the days of Jeremiah that were looking to Egypt for help they saw the rise of Babylon to the east and they thought the answer was to ally themselves to Egypt but here Jeremiah asks you, he asks them, are you home-born slaves? You see, a slave born into slavery had nowhere else to go. His master's house was his home. He's asking, does Israel have no one to follow? Are you going back to when you were born in Egypt? You were born in slavery? Have you never known freedom? And of course the answer was no. They had known freedom. God had led them out of Egypt. Why are they wanting to go back? into slavery. He says, yet the young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the people of Noph and Taphanus have broken the crown of your head. Noph was another name for the Egyptian city of Memphis. And so men of Noph and Taphanus, these were Egyptians. He says, they'll come, they'll break your skull, they'll steal your glory if you put your trust in them. Allying yourself to Egypt is not the answer. Verse 17, he says, Have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the, in the way? And now why take the road to Egypt 
to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river, the Euphrates? Why are you looking to the south? Why are you looking to the east? Why are you looking to Egypt? Why are you looking to Assyria? Why not look up? Why not look to the Lord? Don't you know you brought this on yourself by forsaking the Lord? At the time, two strong armies ruled the world. Egypt to the south of Jerusalem, Babylon in the land of Assyria on the Euphrates River east of Jerusalem. And the Jewish people, they were squabbling. They were divided over which nation to get behind and pledge their support. You could say at the time, Jerusalem was a two-party system. You were either pro-Babylonian or you were pro-Egyptian. But God had a different plan for His people, a different way out of this quandrum. He wanted them to trust not in Egypt, not in Babylon, but to put their trust and allegiance in Him and in Him alone. In fact, here's the theme that emerges in the book of Jeremiah. Political alliances are worthless. Only a loyalty to God can guarantee a nation's security. America, are you listening? I hope and pray America has ears to hear. We once had a rich, spiritual, even Christian heritage, but now it's gone. We've become the secular society. We've forgotten God. We've taken credit for His blessings. In our world today, if you stand for God, chances are you'll have to do it alone. Following Jesus leads a person down paths of loneliness and through times of discouragement. And this is why Jeremiah will be such a help to us. For he has been where we're headed. And we can draw tremendous help and support from Jeremiah. Verse 19. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Here's a scary thought. Your backsliding will rebuke you. It's been said, you don't feel life splinters until you backslide. Shimmying up a pole is pretty painless. But start sliding downward, and that's when you feel the splinters. Life gets hard, backsliding. And the same is true when we slide away from God. He says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When God delivered His people from Egypt, He broke the Pharaoh's yoke. Israel promised to follow God. But look at her now. He says, on every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. You see, when Israel entered into Canaan, they discovered that the Canaanites had multiple gods. They bowed down to their idols on high hills, hoping to get closer to them. They worshipped around groves of trees. Sometimes the trees were shaved into phallic symbols, honoring the various fertility gods and cults. Lustful acts played a part in their worship. And he's saying, sadly, 800 years later, now in the time of Jeremiah, not much has changed. The high hills, the green trees are still in operation. Despite all that God had done to deliver the Jews, idols were still worshipped in Judah. Verse 21, 
Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? (laughs) I mean, God had planted Israel with high hopes. She was a noble vine of the purest pedigree, the highest, purest DNA. She had been kept pure by God, but now she's nothing but a weed, spiritual poa. I was astonished to see at the hallowed grounds of Augusta National splotches of poa growing in the turf. I couldn't believe it. I told Mac, I said, look at the poor. He said, oh, he's dead. You cut it low enough, nobody ever see it. I saw it. Right there in the carpeted ryegrass were patches of weeds. And this is how God saw his people. He wanted them to be a hallowed turf. And yet they had turned into weeds. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. You see, King Josiah had instituted reforms. He had instituted superficial, cosmetic reforms. Sort of an outward cleansing had taken place. But you see, religious reform isn't the same as spiritual revival. We need a transformed heart, not just altered conduct. We need a heart that burns in love for God. He says, how can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after the bales. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, breaking loose in her ways. A wild donkey used to the, used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire, in her time of mating. Who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. This is not a very flattering description here. He's saying to the Jewish people, you're nothing but a a camel in heat. You're nothing but a female donkey in heat. Your only interest is who you can go to bed with. You have no moral concerns, no spiritual concerns. Your only interest is, is what will satisfy you. Sadly, God's people were quick to jump into bed with anyone who told them what they wanted to hear. They weren't thinking of their loyalty to God, the vows they had taken. All they were interested in was taking care of their immediate need for security and for pleasure. And the question becomes, what about us? Do we latch on to whatever provides the quickest and the easiest answer to our problem? Or do we hold out for God to work in our lives? Do we trust only in His intervention and in His supply? Don't just jump into bed with the first solution to your problem without thinking through, without considering your loyalty and allegiances to God. More important to you than just your own security and just the solution to your own problems is your faithfulness to God. That's what will matter in the end. Verse 25, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, I have loved aliens and after them I will go. 
As the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets. As the thief is ashamed. It's not that he's sorry for his sin. It's not that he's concerned that he's defrauded another person. That he took what didn't belong to him. No, he's embarrassed because he got caught. And this was Israel. They, were sorry, they weren't sorry that they had broken God's law. Certainly, they, weren't even, they certainly hadn't considered they'd broken his heart. They were just sorry that they were facing his judgments. In other words, they were remorseful, but not repentant. Israel should have been more ashamed than they were. Imagine, he says, saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me. You see, they were, in worshiping idols, they were ascribing life to inanimate objects like trees and stones. You know, they set up a little stone idol and they say, you are my father. You know, a, a tree. They say, you gave birth to me. Are you kidding? This is the folly, the foolishness of idolatry. And yet, don't modern people do the same? We go to the zoo, we say to the monkeys, you are my father. Humans are the most complex, organized beings on earth. And yet we claim randomness and chance gave us birth, we do the same thing. God concludes, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. Have you turned your back to the Lord have you, or have you turned your face to the Lord? But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Israel will return to God, but by then it will be too late. They'll turn back to God only when they are in trouble. And they need his help. How hypocritical is that? But where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Judah had scores of small towns. Likewise, her idols were numerous. And he's saying, when you're in trouble, let your gods help. You've been serving these false gods. Let them help you in the day of your trouble. Why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain, I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Doesn't it break a parent's heart when you've corrected your child over and over and they still haven't taken heed to what you've tried to communicate? Isn't that the greatest pain to a parent? And that's God's heart toward His people. Oh, generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What bride would possibly forget her wedding dress? I mean, she's been preoccupied with it for months. She'd been starving herself just to fit into it. Likewise, how could God's people ever forget their God? Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. See, Israel was like the woman getting all dolled up, 
She's looking for a sugar daddy. Not a guy she can love and marry, but somebody who can meet her needs, who can satisfy her fickle tastes. This was Israel. This was their desire. He says, also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. Now think of this woman. All she's after is making some connections that are going to satisfy her, finding some men that are going to pay her bills for her, so forth. And so while seducing man after man after man, while looking to meet her own needs, guess what? Babies get in the way. Pregnancies get aborted. And now we're told there's blood on her skirts. And God certainly sees the innocent blood on the skirts of America. Sadly, the number is now 15 million aborted babies since 1973 and counting. Did you know that roughly 24% of all United States pregnancies today end in abortion? Breaks God's heart. Should break ours. Verse 34, I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. In other words, I didn't need a search warrant to discover these sins. Your rebellion was evident. It was blatant. But you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say, I have not sinned. How gullible. They were caught red-handed. There was blood on their skirts, and yet they denied their guilt. And they expected God to believe them. He says, why do you gad about so much to change your way? Gadding about. That uh, is another way of saying vacillating. Going back and forth. They'd been gadding about. They were guilty of indecision. In other words, they had refused to take a stand. They'd been playing both sides. Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt... As you were ashamed of Assyria, indeed you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. See, they had gone back and forth, to and fro, their loyalty to Egypt, their loyalty to Assyria. Who will they be loyal to? And yet neither ally will save them and cause them to prosper. And they'll be led away with their hands on their head as captives taken into bondage. And there are believers who today gad about. They gad about in their commitment to God. Well, one day they're all in. The next day they're not so sure. Hey, if that's you, stop gadding about. God will bring to nothing anything that you trust in apart from Him. And there we have 